Hello, and thank you for joining us on Dark FM Radio. We are currently... On the air. Standards are coming thick and fast now. Here's the Bridge City Jazz Men's version of another favorite, Jada. Hail you ghouls and goblins out there. You've tuned into Dark FM Radio. As always, I'm your host, James Blackbone. If you've listened in before, then you know what we do. But if you're new to the show, first of all, welcome. Here at Dark FM Radio, we tell stories. And not just any stories. First-hand accounts of unexplainable and creepy experiences. Anonymous emails and letters from regular people who claim to have witnessed or experienced something from either the supernatural or just something that just quite can't be explained. So, sit back, relax, grab a drink, turn out the lights, and join us. Our first story tonight is a good reminder of what can be out there lurking in the woods in the dark. We'll call this one the goat. A few years ago, I went camping with my brother and his friends in the San Diego mountains. They had found an uninhabited plot of land alongside Nidal Road, without any indication of private property, and turned it into their secret place. My brother had gone camping there a few times and was eager to show me, so I made the trip down from where I lived in Santa Cruz for a weekend. His friends were sweet, but they had strong personalities. I was the only woman there, which was fine with me, but once the joint was getting passed in rotation and I was stoned, my social anxiety started to hit me like a train. Everyone was laughing and being loud around the fire while I sat on a blanket, alone, staring off and stuck in my head. My brother noticed this and approached me subtly, asking if I wanted to go on a walk with him. I nodded in agreement and stood up, following him down the trail that led to a large clearing. Look at the stars, he told me. They're so beautiful tonight. You can see everything. Yeah, they're stunning. I needed a camping trip so badly, I just shouldn't have smoked while being in a bad headspace, I said. My brother told me that it was okay, that he loved me, and that good people surrounded us. As he consoled me, something stood out from my peripheral view, absorbing more of the moon's light than the dark trees and the bushes surrounding it. I turned my attention down from the sky and saw what looked exactly like, well, a goat demon standing four feet in front of me. It was an abnormally large goat head with long curved horns and black eyes. It was staring right at me. 
You see that? I calmly asked my brother, keeping my eyes directed at the goat head. I sensed him redirect his attention toward it, then he replied. Uh, that goat? With a hesitant and shaky voice. That confirmed it, I wasn't just high and freaking out. My brother, much sober and mentally more capable than me at the time, was seeing the same thing I was. Uh, yeah, I said, and we nervously laughed together before simultaneously turning our backs to it and speed walking to the fire, trying our best not to panic. As we entered the fire's glow and were surrounded by his friends again, my brother announced to the group, Don't go in that direction, there's a fucking goat demon. He laughed nervously, trying to make light of it. A what? A friend laughed, thinking we were just high and paranoid. No, we just saw a fucking giant goat head with horns staring at us in the dark. I chimed in, and my brother confirmed what I was saying. Everyone picked at us, saying we smoked too much, but we both knew what we saw. Besides, my brother wasn't even that stoned. He a heavyweight and seemed completely clear-headed compared to everyone else. He continues to go there with his friends and now refers to the spot as the goat place. I, however, have not returned. He claims he hasn't seen it since and isn't too concerned about it, but it was creepy enough for me. I'd be content never returning to that mountain. Now, I can't say that the drugs didn't have anything to do with that, but the fact that they both saw it, well, that kind of tells you something. I don't blame her for not going back to those woods. I know I wouldn't. Our second story involves a little bit of mischief and a little bit of fun. But as you'll hear, sometimes fun can also be scary. We'll call this one the fairgrounds. When I was in high school, my group of friends and I were the classic misfits. Shitty home lives, consistently skipping school, and always on a new adventure pursuing new highs. Sneaking out at night was frequent. Most nights, each other was all we had. We'd climb up the abandoned local search tower with a case of beer and go to the ski resort during its after hours and sled, or drive around to be anywhere but home. One random weekend, our friend Camille asked us during lunch if we'd ever been to the abandoned fairground a couple towns over. After saying we hadn't, she told us she would take us later that night. Ecstatic, we all planned to be outside our homes and ready for her to pick us up around midnight. After lunch, we all split up, and I couldn't hold my excitement for this new exploration. A quarter past twelve, I saw Camille's headlights pull up to the end of my driveway. I climbed onto the roof outside of my bedroom window, threw a thick comforter down on the grass, and jumped onto it my most common exit plan. I then picked up the blanket and put it in the trunk of Camille's car in case we wanted it for sitting later. Everyone else was already in her vehicle, so I had to sit atop my friend Tony's lap for the car ride. Everyone was instantly hyped for the night's journey when we pulled into the fairground parking lot. Weeds had grown all over, between every flaw in the pavement, and in the distance we could see a Ferris wheel 
with ivy covering nearly every inch of its structure. We hopped out, a few of us holding flashlights, and happily walked into the fairgrounds. We first encountered a game stand where you shoot at wooden ducks and potentially win a stuffed animal. Everything was still intact except for the thick layer of dust that coated it. Two friends jumped behind the counter and grabbed large stuffed animals, laughing about how incredibly expensive this was. After that, we slowly split off and ventured independently, finding fascination in different things. Tony and I went to the Ferris wheel and sat on one of the bottom seats. Do you think it'll break with us on it? He asked. No, this is thick metal, it won't break. Yeah, but look how old it is. Did Camille ever mention how this place shut down? It had to have been 50 years ago. It does look like we're in an apocalypse movie. There's something beautiful about it, though. It's like time traveling. The whole place is frozen in time. As I finished my sentence, the unexplainable happened. Every light on the ferris wheel lit up from beneath the ivy, and a loud buzzing sound came from it. Our seat started to shake as if it were glitching. It tried to spin, but the densely layered vines kept it from rotating. Tony and I jumped off it and stared at the ride in astonishment. Holy shit, he yelled. There's no way that just turned on. We stared at it with our jaws dropped to the floor. How could that be possible? We shouted for our friends to come and observe, but no one was around to watch the magic happen. So we ran to where we last saw the others. On our way back to the starting point, Tony and I passed our friend Marcus. He was sitting on one of the game booth chairs talking to himself. We stopped to listen. Marcus was seemingly conversing with somebody, but nobody was nearby. He was talking to thin air as if somebody had sat down beside him. Don't worry, you're not stuck here. Get a ride home with my friends and me. I know they won't mind, he said, facing the chair beside him. Chills ran down my spine as soon as I heard him say, Don't worry, you're not stuck here. He was interacting with something we couldn't see or hear. Marcus? I asked, frightened. Oh, hey guys, this is Marianne, he said, happily gesturing his hand beside him. She got stuck here somehow and needs a ride home tonight. Marcus, nobody's there, Tony said defensively. What are you talking about? He laughed, then turned his head back towards Marianne, only to no longer see her. Wait, where'd she go? He asked, looking at us, shocked. We didn't respond, yet the next look on our faces must have said it all. She was never there, he quivered. No, she wasn't, and we should probably leave, I said. Wait. We have to show him the Ferris wheel. Tony turned to Marcus. Dude, the Ferris wheel just turned on all by itself while we were sitting on it, Tony said in excitement, apparently unbothered by everything going on around us. What the fuck? Marcus whispered. Where is everyone else? No idea. We were just looking for you guys, I told him. Marcus rose to his feet and started to walk away. Well, let's find them right now. We walked around the grounds calling everyone's name, but nobody answered. After 30 minutes of searching the entire fair, we concluded they were gone. We jogged back to the parking lot to see if they'd left as a prank, knowing they would never leave us maliciously, but Camille's car was still parked where it had been left. That's when we all started to argue. 
Tony said we should stay until we find them. Marcus said, no way, we have to leave. On the other hand, I proposed we find something to ride on and leave a note on her windshield, stating that we'd left. Home is two fucking towns over, Tony yelled at me. We're not walking that far. We won't make it back until tomorrow morning. And what about our friends? What if they're hurt? He asked me. That was my initial thought too. What if they're hurt? I decided to look around for them one final time, but Marcus was too scared to go back. I'll wait by the car, he whimpered, so Tony and I left him in the parking lot. We covered every inch of the fairground for a second time and still had no luck finding our friends. We called their names, went inside abandoned buildings, and even searched inside booths for them. No luck. Tony and I reached a point where we had to start reasoning. They weren't there, and Camille had the car keys. Our only option was to walk home. We could have called the police, but we didn't want any of us getting in trouble for trespassing, so we bit the bullet and hit the road on foot. We eventually split ways once we entered our town, individually heading to our own homes. Luckily, I made it back just before my parents woke. I tried to call Camille the following afternoon, but she didn't answer. I also tried calling two other friends who disappeared that night, but they didn't answer either. Only Tony and Marcus showed up to school the following day, and we had to brainstorm our next move. The possibility of them getting injured, kidnapped, or God forbid dying was very likely to us, and we were panicking to the point of feeling sick to our stomachs. Scared to death over our missing friends and the potential consequences, we decided to wait just one more day before notifying the police, holding on to whatever hope we had left. Luckily, the following day, Camille and our other two friends showed up at school. And by the time lunch rolled around, we had an abundance of questions to ask. What the hell, you guys? Marcus yelled at them. We were worried you got hurt or worse, died. Excuse me? You're the one who left without saying anything. Who does that? And you didn't even bother answering our phone calls this morning, Camille raged. What are you talking about? We spent hours searching the entire fairgrounds for you three, and you weren't there. Because of you, we had to walk all the way home, and none of you answered our phone calls. Not the other way around, Tony shouted back. Yeah, we were worried something terrible happened. You guys just vanished. Where'd you go? I asked them. They exchanged glances of confusion before answering me. Camille and the two boys claimed to have been there the entire time, and that we three, Tony, Marcus, and I, went missing. I then asked why they didn't come to school yesterday, and Camille's response was perhaps the most disturbing part of all. What are you talking about? Yesterday is when we made the fairground plans. We were all here. No, I responded. That, that was two days ago, Camille. She laughed at us and asked if we were on drugs, stating it was Thursday. It's Friday, Marcus spoke lightly, hesitantly, opening his school schedule to show her. See? They announced we'd have a school assembly this afternoon, and it's on the weekly schedule, right here written on Friday. The three of them froze up, as if they'd seen a ghost, refusing to accept they had missed an entire day's worth of time. According to them, they were having a great time until realizing that they hadn't seen Marcus, Tony, or me in a while. They then walked all over the fairgrounds in search for us until morning. 
Once the sun started to rise, they agreed to go home and get ready for school. And then if we didn't get in touch with them by the night, they'd call the police. Similar to the plan that we had. However, they thought the following morning was actually two days later. That means Camille and the boys spent two nights at the fairgrounds. How to begin explaining that? I'm not sure. This story has never left our circle until now. We felt nobody would ever believe us, and it was best to keep the entire incident a secret. We have no idea what happened that night or how it could be possible. We collectively tried to research the fairgrounds history, when and why it was abandoned, but we couldn't find any answers. Its history, name, existence, nothing about it is accessible or searchable. The deserted park still sits there today. I can see why they kept that story secret for so long. I'm glad they told us. Looks like their fun turned into a little bit of a nightmare. But luckily, they all came out unscathed. Our third and final story isn't as scary as some of the other stories, but I think it's important to tell. Sometimes the weird and strange is just that, the weird and strange. We'll call this final story The Orb. Five years after I moved away from home, my mother sold her house and moved to a small riverside cottage in Vermont. Following her first year living there, I finally got time off work to visit her from Florida. I'd never been to Vermont before, but it always struck me as dreamy. She'd start her mornings on the quiet river nearly every day before walking her dog on a forest trail nearby. It was a slow and peaceful life, something I was looking forward to experiencing with her. I arrived at her new home in the early afternoon. She provided a property tour before brewing tea for us to enjoy on the front porch. While filling me in on her new chapter, she spoke of something very bizarre. My mother and all her neighbors regularly see a glowing orb at night that flies and hovers low to the ground. Sometimes it's white, other times it's orange. No one knows what it is, but it seems innocent, Mom chuckled. You know, that's not normal, right? I asked, confused by her nonchalance. She laughed again, telling me that Vermont is a world on its own. There are cursed mountains that indigenous tribes wouldn't dare step foot on. They also believed the surrounding land was doomed with bad luck wherever two rivers met, and Vermont beholds endless rivers and streams that bleed into one another. She also told the rumor about the entirety of southern Vermont. Some settlers and natives believed a gigantic slab of black crystal lies two layers beneath the surface of soil, dooming all the land in the southernmost county, the same county she resides. I asked why she chose to live in a supposed cursed area, and she didn't seem to take it too seriously. I don't think it's cursed, but there's a lot of history in these parts, that's for sure. And when it comes to the orb, I feel like I'm living in a fantasy land. It's cool, not something many would experience in their lifetime. 
I suppose she had a fair point. It is fascinating if the orb seems non-threatening or ominous. Either way, the idea its existence is incomprehensibly intriguing. I also found it strange how locally accepted and acknowledged this ball of light is, yet you never hear stories of orb sightings. It's not a common phenomenon like UFOs and Bigfoot. I want to see the orb, I told her. I wish I could show it to you, honey. It has to show itself to you. Please spend some time outside this week when it's dark. You're bound to see it at some point before you leave. We ate dinner outside that evening, hoping to see the orb together, and though I was trying my best to be present with Mom, I couldn't resist constantly looking over my shoulder. It never revealed itself that night, so I decided to come outside every dawn and wander the property to increase my chances. After four consecutive nights of doing this, I gave it a rest and decided to watch a movie after supper instead. My mother took her dog Roscoe for a walk down their dirt road as I got situated on the couch, and when she came back inside, she had news to share. You should have come with me. The orb was hovering in the middle of the road, about five seconds. She exclaimed as she barged through the front door. I launched off the couch to go outside and see it for myself, but she said it had already gone. It was bright orange and hovered down the way, about as high off the ground as I am tall. Roscoe and I stopped to observe, and once it finished hovering, it zipped down the road and was gone in a flash, she smiled. It was so cold. At this point, I'm starting to think this whole thing is fake. How come you and your neighbors see it so often, but I haven't once in the past four nights I've been here? I asked, doubting the existence of the orb. She shrugged and told me she didn't know what to say, so I continued watching my show in slight bitterness, having given up on the hovering ball of light completely. My vacation approached its end, and my final night of visiting rolled into place. Before returning to the city, I wanted to soak in every ounce of the beautiful surrounding for one last time. As I grabbed a bottle of wine and brought it back down to the dock, admiring the moon-kissed river, my mother was on a work call in the cottage, so I was alone by the water. I observed the glistening waves and how they reflected the moon's glow, and as I absorbed the specific detail, the glowing grew more prominent. I thought, whoa, you can vividly see the moon's reflection. The water is like a mirror, only to realize it wasn't the moon's reflection. I was looking at it. It was the orb. Shining like a star, shedding its stunning white light, it hovered over the center of the river, subtly dancing in place. I gazed in amazement, not one bit frightened by the sighting. It was so whimsical, like I was living in a fairy tale world. The orb put on a brilliant show as if it mutually acknowledged my presence. Then it zipped down the river in a flash like a shooting star burning off into the sky. I felt tempted to run inside and tell mom about the encounter, but something held me back. Let me just soak this in a little bit longer, I told myself. My mother was so happy to hear I finally saw the mysterious orb, even poking fun at me saying, See, I told you it was real. It was a beautiful moment, the orb showing itself to me in the manner that it did. The evening was unforgettable and question remains. What exactly is the orb? Where did it come from? And why does it linger in this area? Though the idea may frighten some, I found the experience charming overall. Anyway, thanks for reading my story, though it may not be as creepy as other reports. I hope you enjoyed this unusual phenomena. Best regards.
that story is a good reminder that not all the strange things we see in the sky are out to get us. Sometimes they might even be trying to tell us something. Thank you for listening to Dark FM Radio. Credit these stories to Unexplainable Happenings, Chilling True Stories by Tom Lyons and Autumn Barnes. You can find those on Kindle. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It truly does help us. Thank you again for tuning into Dark FM Radio. Good night.